This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. So next Sunday is going to be uh, Summit Sunday. We're going to have a very special service and give you a taste of the Global Leadership Summit that Lydia and I went to back in August. That does mean there'll be no live stream next week because of copyright. So no online church videos uh, next week. And just a reminder, is this still true, Lydia, after the service today? There is a read-through of the Panto script. Oh, yes, there is. Um, So if you think you might be interested, turning up the read-through does not um, force you to do anything more. Okay, it's a chance to come and taste and see if you're up for it. And I can see you looking really interested, Frank. So why don't you come along? <laughs> well, and Leanne as well. Brilliant. What a couple. Hansel and Gretel right there. Um, after the service and, and join in. Now, last week, I went to the British Museum and I ended up sitting in the cafe next to none other than Indiana Jones, the world-famous archaeologist. But he was looking pretty glum. So I said to him, what's wrong? And he said, my life's work is in ruins. And also, while at the museum, I took in their new exhibition of this recently discovered mummy who was buried with nuts and covered in chocolate. That's right, it's the tomb of Pharaoh Rocher. So in 1838, there was an archaeologist and Bible scholar named Edward Robinson, and he was examining some stones that were jutting out from the side of the walls of the temple, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, really high above ground level. And these stones were huge. The largest one was 45 foot long, a single hunk of stone, which in modern money is 14 metres, which is about from that banner to the sound desk. That was the the length of this single piece of stone, dozens of feet above the ground in the wall. Here's a photo of the stones taken just a few uh, years ago. Can you just see them on the right-hand side? They're kind of jutting out. And there's another picture from a, a different angle as well, I think. There we go. You just see how high they are above the ground. So the realisation that Robinson had was that these stones were the support of one end of a giant archway and stairway that the historian Josephus described in his historical works. And it was one end of the main entrance that you would walk up this giant stairway to get into the temple. Here's an architect's representation of what it would look like. So if you can just see that that archway that goes over the street into the temple, what was supporting that was these stones that we saw jutting out. I mean, just imagine how big that is, 
how wide it is. The entrance to the temple was as wide as this room is long, right? This is how huge the temple was. It was one of the largest archways in the ancient world. They reckon it weighed something like 1,600 tons. And it was just one of the miracles of engineering that was found in the temple at Jerusalem. And it was all part of a great expansion and building program that was driven by and funded by King Herod. Yeah. King Herod the baby killer. The same guy. So starting about 20 years before the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great, as he was known, embarked on a program to rebuild and expand the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and enlarge its walls. And he did that in order to win favour with the Jewish people so that it would be easier to rule. And he's also, he was quoted saying it was to ensure his eternal remembrance. That was what was quoted in the history books. So the rebuilding of the Temple Mount was one of just several great building programs that Herod um, engaged in during his lifetime. But it was certainly, I think, the most impressive. And after his death in about AD 4, the building work continued well into the 60s. But the core structures were all finished by about the time Jesus was visiting them in the Gospels, kind of the AD 30 kind of time. But that was just give you a sense of the scale of this thing and the the size and the magnitude. Now, in case you're kind of scratching your head thinking, Herod's dead, but Herod was in the... So Herod's son was called Herod. So the Herod we read about later on in the Gospels, the one who killed John the Baptist, the one that Jesus calls that sly fox, that was the son of Herod the Great, the baby killer and temple builder. So back to the, the temple. Josephus says in his history book that it took a thousand wagons and ten thousand skilled workmen were employed in this project to expand and rebuild the temple. In fact, Herod's engineers were capable of placing stones in such perfect alignment that the smallest stones in the walls weighed several tons. The big stones used in the corners were about a hundred ton each. Blokes and donkeys did that. It is amazing. In fact, the placement of these stones was so precise that when they, modern archaeologists and architects have gone and kind of studied what's left standing of the walls, they realise that they've been intentionally offset as you go up by about an inch every time there's another what's called a course of stones so that when you're standing at the bottom, it doesn't look like the wall is about to fall on top of you. Just kind of, it's an optical illusion to make it look straighter. And it wasn't the size alone that left people astonished when they saw this temple. The stones were beautifully designed and finished as well. And because of Herod's commitment to dry masonry, all these massive stones were held together by nothing more than their weight and the preciseness of the shaping and the cut. In fact, even today, visitors cannot even get a razor blade between those stones that still remain. So tightly do they fit together. We've got this little video here that just shows you um, the temple as it was in Jesus' day, and that's a modern-day view, just kind of flipping between the two. You get a sense for how big this complex was compared to 
the rest of the city of Jerusalem. So this is the temple complex, more of a campus really, that Jesus had been spending these last few days in that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks in our sermon series. It was in this complex that Jesus watched the little old widow put her two copper coins in the offering last week that Dave was talking about. And some of the offering was to continue the building works. At the time of this in the Gospels, they're probably about 30 years away from finishing the construction. And it stood for about seven or eight years before Rome came and flattened it all. But as Mark recorded in his Gospel, just after they'd watched the little old lady put her two copper coins into the offering, into the building fund, if you like, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as they came out of the temple, one of the disciples said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And now you get a sense for what the disciples were looking at that made them exclaim in such a way. And Luke continues that conversation in our scripture this morning. So from Luke 21, verse 5. And while they were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, that's Jesus As for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so they asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And Jesus said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must take place, but at the end will not be at once. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this morning, Lord God, that you would open your scripture to us. Help us to understand, Lord, what's on your heart, what you want to teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll just have a little sip of my coffee. I've got a little coffee holder here. See what we've done that? Very good, very good. I have two more for the worship team, for, for a small fee. Yes. Mm. Vanilla latte, helps with the preaching. Right. So today's reading really does continue directly on from last week's encounter with this widow at the collection plate that David spoke about. And that in itself was a continuation of this series of Uh, thoughts and encounters that Jesus has been having with the religious leaders of the day. So it'll be no surprise if I tell you that this week's sermon is just more of the same. In fact, you could call it part two of my message from the other week. Because here, once more, Jesus is challenging the way his disciples are thinking, how they view the world, and I think those same challenges are just as relevant for us today. And because some of you seem to enjoy it so much last time, all of this week's sermon points are again named after 80s pop hits. So you see if you can name the artist. Let's start with Our House. See, during Jesus' time, the temple in Jerusalem was referred to as the House of God, or just the house. So if two friends met in the bazaar, to grab a vanilla latte and where you go, I'm going up to the house. They meant I'm going to church. I'm going to the temple. 
And more than the, just this name house, it carried with it the idea of home. It was the spiritual home of the Jewish people. It was their place of sanctuary in, the, in a hard and dangerous world. It was the vibrant, beating heart of the Jewish religion, the centre of their spiritual lives and their family lives. And we see this in the story of Jesus. As a newborn, his parents took him to the temple. Luke chapter 2 says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. And Luke also recounts that Mary and Joseph travelled up to Jerusalem to go to the temple at least once a year, all the way through the life of Jesus at Passover. Luke chapter 2, you might remember this story. His parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, they returned. The boy, Jesus, though, stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. Now understanding the size and the scale of this, you know, when we, when we think about the temple, don't think about something the size of the abbey. Think about something the size of a large school or small university. You know, that was the size of this complex. No wonder they lost track of where Jesus was. So over the last few weeks, we've been considering all that happened to Jesus since he arrived in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And it has all been focused on the house, focused on the temple. And I think Jesus has been planting ideas and challenging mindsets in order to prepare his people for a spiritual revolution, a new way to relate to God, a new covenant, preparing them for the end of a temple-centric religion. One that said, God dwells in the temple. If you want to worship God, you must travel to where God is, in the temple. Jesus is preparing his followers for a new idea, that where they themselves would become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and God would be with them always because he dwells within them by his Spirit. Now, when Jesus approached Jerusalem, you know, just before Palm Sunday, before his arrival on that donkey, Matthew records these words as Jesus looked from an adjacent hill out across the city. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. And that's exactly what would happen. AD 70, the temple is destroyed by the Roman army along with most of Jerusalem. But by the time that happens, 35 or so years after the death of Jesus, what are Christians doing? They're not going to the temple anymore, are they? The temple-centric worship had ended. They were practicing their faith, meeting in house groups, home churches, and things like that. So Jesus has been shifting his disciples' thinking, making them realize that religious ceremony is meaningless unless it reflects a sincere heart. And the cleansing of the temple, this theme that's been there for these last few conversations Jesus has been having, cleansing the physical temple of the money changers and the market stalls, cleansing the temple of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, clearing out the lies, clearing out the bad attitudes. Now we had more of the same last week. Dave dug into the report of the widow and the two 
copper coins. She who put in the least amount of money into the collection of the temple, Jesus says she was the one who put in the most. He's turning all the mindsets upside down. And those collection funnels inside the temple, each one represented putting money to different use. Some of them would be turning the money to finishing the great building project started by Herod. So you can imagine, as the Jesus and his disciples, they tumble out through the great doors from the cool shadows into the heat of the day in Jerusalem. Maybe they were stood at the top of that giant stairwell. The disciples are looking around in wonder. Look at it. It is huge. It is massive. Look at the way it shines in the sun. Many of these stones were finished with gold. They would have sparkled brightly in the Israeli midday sun. They would look to the giant blocks of stone and think, how on earth did they move these stones? They're even bigger than Peter. How do they get them up to the top of these steps? And Jesus says, guys, it's, it's not about a building. That this building won't even be here for much longer. While they were speaking about the temple, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. Wait, what? What are the disciples thinking? Jesus is delivering mind shift number one. You don't need to go to a special place in order to encounter God. It's one of the things that differentiates the temple religion of the Jews from Jesus' new covenant. You don't need to go to a special place to encounter God. Now, the season of our house is coming to an end. No temple. Our house is going to be destroyed. The disciples don't know what to think. So they ask the obvious question, well, when? When is this going to happen? Well, it's a sign of the times. Who sung sign of the times? Sorry? Yes. Well done. See, I was convinced it's Banana Rama, and I just decided to check my fact. And I was like, oh, no, it's Bellstaff. Yeah, yeah. It's a sign of the times. Anyway, so Luke 21. So the disciples asked Jesus, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, we all want to know what's going to happen next, don't we? We're desperate to know what's going to happen next. Businesses forecast how much profit they're going to make next year. Politicians try and tell us what's going to happen in the economy next year. People look for signs and omens, the clues in the stars about what they're weak is going to hold. We want to know what's going to happen next. And disciples asked, what's the sign we need to look for? What's the clue? Tell us. How will we know? So Jesus tells them, well, look for this. He doesn't, does he? He says, make sure you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am here. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. Jesus doesn't even answer their question. No clues are recorded in Luke's gospel. Rather, Jesus, he warns his disciples of the danger of chasing after signs, chasing after prophets. Don't go after them, he warns. See that you are not led astray. And I think for us, it's a challenge to kind of avoid that temptation 
of trying to search out who's that preacher, who's that prophet that offers some hope or explanation as to what's going on in the world today. Well, Jesus said, don't chase after those people. And I think there's, there's a, a sense that Jesus is talking about two different kinds of future here. He's talking about the near future and the distant future. So it sounds like the disciples are linking the destruction of the temple with their expectation that the Messiah is going to come and kick out the Romans and you know, restore Eden to Israel. But Jesus wants to put them right. He says that anyone who says the time is at hand is wrong. And they might remember what Jesus had told them earlier in Mark quotes in chapter 13. He said, Jesus said, concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What's the second mind shift that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to make? Don't be so preoccupied with the future that you're no use in the present. And we end up holding these, these two truths in tension. We need to live like Jesus is coming back tomorrow. And at the same time, live like he's going to be away for a while yet. Because when he does come, he's going to want to know, what do we do with all this time and resources he gave us to tell people about the gospel? So there's no point in trying to work out, when is Jesus coming back again? Because no one knows. In fact, not even Jesus knows. In other words, it ain't over till it's over, Jerry. Who sang that one? Lenny Kravitz. Right. Jesus says there is plenty of history that needs to play out before the end of days. In verse 9, Jesus says, When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. So there's nothing special or significant about wars and tumults, which is like disorders and insurrections and, and the like. There's nothing significant about these things. That's just plain old messed up human history. It's always happened and it always will. In other words, don't go getting worried about what's in the news. You know, men of God from St. Augustine through to Billy Graham have looked at the state of the world in their day and declared, surely this means Jesus is coming back soon. Well, Jesus says, the end will not be at once. In other words, if it's not at once, it must be later. And the point here is, is that focusing on when Jesus is coming back is focusing on the wrong thing. Jesus wants us just to focus on how we're living out each day until it happens. That's what counts. He wants us to live lives of holy worship as if we were going to meet Jesus tomorrow, but at the same time making practical plans, as if we're not going to see him for years yet. And we need to be able to manage our resources and function until that time happens. So that the body of Christ is functional, showing God's love to those people in need. 
Do not be terrified, said Jesus. Because he says, for I am with you, even until the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we do not need to worry because you are in control. Even when the world looks crazy and messed up, Lord God, you are in control. Jesus is coming back at just the right time, not too late, not too early. And until that time, Lord God, in this season where we're living, Father, I pray that we would be effective in all that you've called us to be. So we'd not be scared, sitting at home, we'd not be distracted, wasting our time trying to predict stuff that's not predictable. We will just listen to your Holy Spirit and do the things you call us to do every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So as the band comes, I pray that you would receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.